0: Hey y'all, my name is
1: Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emanuel and Hooksett. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. The enemy does not want this topic discussed, taught, preached upon, or challenged in our lives. I believe that bitterness is one of the, ironically, root causes of the anemia in churches, and in Christian lives today. It's a, it's a disease that often goes untreated. And the reason why in the slideshow it says uncovering bitter roots is because a lot of times it begins, well, all the time, it begins under the surface unbeknownst to you. And then it grows under the surface, and then the tree, it starts, it starts butting up, it starts breaking the, breaking the soil. And you may or may not notice that, but gradually as that tree grows up, other people start to notice. And as it develops branches and leaves, and we're going to look at this in some detail today, other people are corrupted by your bitterness. The Bible says they're defiled by your own personal bitterness. And I've spoken to people that they think they can keep their bitterness to themselves. I'm just not going to deal with this. I was hurt. I'm not going to deal with it. But the problem is you don't keep it to yourself. You don't keep it to yourself. You think you are, but you're not. And you are losing your godly influence on your surroundings. You're losing your influence on your children. In fact, not only are you losing your influence on your children, you're influencing them for evil. And often the bitterness that's raging in your soul is birthed in theirs as well. And so it continues. We're going to look at that today. Bitterness. I hope that you'll buckle up for the ride. And so we already read the first two verses uh Oops. That is running Here we go. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're doing a study on Wednesday nights. You're welcome to come at 7 o'clock. We're doing a study on the life of Jesus. Last week, we went in depth on the deity of Christ, what the Bible says about him. This week, we're going to continue on and, and see some of the things that he said himself. And so I hope that you'll come. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is all God. He is all man. And so we look to Jesus. He is the beginner, the originator of our faith, and he will complete our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor be be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. That's that's an extreme important point when you have legalistic teaching in your life and you've seen the bitterness come from that, for example, you should understand that God is not the angry boogeyman in heaven with a baseball bat and spikes sticking out of it just waiting for you to screw up, but that when God does chasten us and however he does it, what does it say here? He does it for what? Our profit. For our sake, discipline is teaching. It's teaching us. I was just talking to our AV team about um, football practice. I know you just love to hear about it. And I was talking about that time where Coach Lee, my son was a middle school football player, and I used to coach him, and the head of the program, Coach Lee, he was like an old cranky old man, and all the kids loved him. They all loved him. And one day, he decided that these kids needed a little extra discipline. And you're going to run some more sprints, and you're going to take another lap. And they take another lap, and they're just sweating, and they're dying, and they're st- <gasps> <gasps> And, you know, you have not put their hands on their helmet because it opens up your ribcage. You breathe a little better because they're just, they're just gassed. And he asks the kids, and there were some really little ones there, and he's like, Why do you play football? And one of these adorable little kids, there's nothing cuter than like a third or fourth grade kid playing football. The giant helmet and the shoulder pads, and they look like little bobblehead dolls. I remember Nate when he was in fourth grade. It's just adorable. And um, this little kid's like, because it's fun? And Lee says, football is not fun. Football is life. And life, and uh, take another lap. Now, that seems intense. It was intense. The interesting thing is these kids adored him. He wasn't abusing them. He worked them out because they needed discipline and conditioning. Everything we did was to make these kids better. And so when we look at God and he introduces discipline and difficult things in our lives, he does it to make us better to bring us into his holiness. He does it for our sake and for the sake of those that are around us. Now, no chastening, now listen, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. You know, I can tell you when those kids are running around the field and they're gassed and they're sucking wind and they're throwing up on the side, I mean, that was one of my favorite things to have. Um, It's painful in the moment. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been There's the word trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And I love this passage because to me it says this. Not to me, this is what it means. Literally says, basically straighten up. Anybody ever heard that? Straighten up and fly right. That's what I heard when I was younger. Straighten up and fly right. Listen, strengthen your knees, suck it up, and get moving in the right direction. Stop whining about your discipline and allow it to do its job. Straighten up and fly right. Uh, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. There's our influence that I was mentioning a moment ago. When we are consumed with bitterness, holiness takes a back seat, and without holiness... No one sees the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. So it's a root under the surface, and when it finally springs up, what happens? What happens? Causes trouble, causes divorce, causes church splits, Causes families that are just unhappy places to be. You know, there may not be divorce, but everyone in the family knows that nobody in the family is happy. Causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, a profane person, irreligious person, person who had no, uh, no respect for God, like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, you know, afterwards, when he, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was, he was rejected. And this is what bitterness does, guys. Bitterness is going to rob you of your rewards, rob you of your influence. And if you don't deal with it, it may rob you of your ability to sincerely repent. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So what what? What is bitterness? What is bitterness? I think that's a good place to start here. What is bitterness? In order to defeat bitterness, we need to understand what it is. Knowing what it is helps us uncover its roots and helps us to deal with them. And hopefully, before too much, too much harm is done. The dictionary of the Bible says bitterness is this. A feeling of anger and resentment caused particularly by perceived unfairness in suffering or adverse circumstances. Now, I've got three kids. I think all three have said to me at one time, <laughs> that's not fair. To which my answer is, life's not fair. And then, I, and then I add to it, what do I add to it? Get used to it not fair. Get used to it. Otherwise, bitterness, cranky, depressed, down, everything you can think of that's negative. Bitterness bubbles to the surface. Cambridge Dictionary, bitterness, someone who is bitter is angry, unhappy because they cannot forget bad things that happened in the past. I feel very bitter about my childhood after all I went through. Or, or, or maybe she suffered terribly over the years. The opposite, but it hasn't made her bitter. Do you know anyone like that? Someone who's suffered terribly over the years? Horrible things. Johnny Erickson, ta comes to mind. She was a teenager, dove into a pool and broke her neck, and she was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. That's pretty bad, wouldn't you say? Young teenage girl, neck down, quadriplegic she decided to start painting using her teeth, holding the brush. She's a world-famous painter, but she also started a ministry. And through the ministry, she blesses parents with disabled children, camps the whole family can go to, resources and counseling resources and books by probably the dozen on helping people deal with grief and suffering and pain and heartache and she doesn't appear to have become bitter. Now, is she a perfect person? Absolutely not. She's going about her life and, and she's, she's uh, a quadriplegic, but now she has chronic pain. Chronic pain. Probably arthritis in her neck. And, and so it's not bad enough that you have to break your full neck and why didn't God save me from that? And, and now I have to live in this constant chronic pain? How is that okay? Well, that was tough. And then a few years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, what's going on now? And did she have her moments? Of course she did. But has she become bitter? No. No. You don't have to let life's circumstances dictate to you how you react and respond, but so often we do. And we do it without even thinking, and it's a root. It's a root. It starts hidden. Bitterness is marked by intensity or severity, accompanied by severe pain or suffering, a bitter death, being relentlessly determined, Uh, exhibit intense animosity, Harshful reproach, marked by cynicism and rancor. And do, do you know anyone like that? The cynic? Just go on Twitter. I'm, I'm having some fun. I'm being nice. But, but folks, on both sides, you want to talk about bitterness right now? Rancor? Uh, we have intensely unpleasant... Cold and raw. Ever met someone like that? That's defining personality traits. Synonyms for bitterness, in case case we're not clear. Resentful, aggrieved, dissatisfied, disgruntled, discontented, grudge-bearing. Whoa, pastor, let's not go to grudge-bearing. It's okay to, listen, they did me wrong. It's okay for me to bear a grudge. If you want to ruin your life and the life of those around you, does that make you feel better? One of the things I've heard people say is, um, well, I learned my lesson. I'm never helping anybody again. I've literally heard someone say that. That's the last time I'm being taken advantage of. Or that's the last time I'm doing something for somebody. Because all it does is come back and hit me in the face. Because that's bitterness. And then I've heard from pastors, listen to me, no one is exempt. I'm not exempt. No one is exempt from bitterness. I've heard pastors say, you know what I've learned? Don't trust anyone, especially other pastors. There's some severe hurt there. There's some severe hurt that caused that bitterness that wasn't dealt with well. Now, if you're a bitter person, if you have bitterness in your life and you've come to that place where you say, don't trust anyone, what kind of impact are you having around, the, around your world, your circle of influence? Don't trust anyone. One of the, the greatest ways to win trust from people is to give trust to people. And without having trust from people, your ability to minister to them is incredibly shallow. Incredibly shallow. You think bitterness is bad? Or are, we, are we in agreement that bitterness probably is not the right thing for us to be entrenched with? Do we agree with this today? You think that bitterness in your heart Is causing you harm? Are you you realizing that today? Petulant, peevish, sour, churlish, morose, jaundiced, spiteful. Ill-disposed. How do you want people to remember you? When you die, how do you want people to remember you? Well, I loved her, but man, she was a pain. I loved her, but I didn't love being around her. Pastor, no one would say that at a funeral. I've done a lot of funerals, and you're probably right. No one would say that, but they all be thinking it. I buried a relative of mine, and I was thinking it. Her, her pastor got up. I didn't realize that he had Alzheimer's. Nobody told me when I invited him to come up and say a few words that turned into a 20-minute bizarre sainting of This individual, like he basically had her walking on water and holding the door for Peter. I mean, she was like the best thing ever. And I'm sitting there, and I grew up with this lady, and I'm like, she faked a heart attack when she was babysitting me and my brothers. She faked a heart attack. Now, did we deserve it? It was me, Randy, and Tracy, so I'm thinking Randy and Tracy probably deserved it. You know, when you, get, you ever get the margarine bowls, you know what those are? Uh, they make great water guns. Except it's not a gun. You just fill them up with water, and you have an awesome water fight with your brothers. So you can imagine what the house looked like. But she faked a heart attack. Her, my memory of her is not, wow, what an awesome, godly, loving woman. My memory of this person is, lips like this. She drove us to see Red Dawn when I was a little kid. When did Red Dawn come out? It was pre-Tricia, so before I was 16. I was pretty young. She was a legalistic, cranky old lady. All the way there, she's telling us we're going to the devil's den and Jesus is going to come back and you're going to be left there in the seat. She was wonderful. She a wonderful, warm-hearted woman. You don't think bitterness impacts other people? Do you know how many of my family visited her when she ended up in a nursing home? How often? You set yourself up, folks. You can point the finger at the people that aren't visiting you and that don't show affection to you, but very often the person to blame for that is you. It's gotten really quiet in here. I've been so excited about this series, i got to tell you. I'm like really amped for it. That's what bitterness is. So to deal with bitterness, before we jump into your roots, let's, let's, let's kill it before it starts. This is the best way to deal with bitterness is not allow it to have that foothold. Kill it before it starts. This passage that we were just reading, it's, it begins with an admonition to look to Jesus, right? He says, look unto Jesus. He is the originator and the fulfiller of your faith, the author and finisher of your faith. He is the one that will give you the weapons necessary to defeat bitterness before it even gets a start. And so we need to be prepared for this. And so here it is, guess what? You're gonna be disappointed in me. You're going to be disappointed in your spouse. You're going to be disappointed in your kids. You're going to be disappointed with God. Pastor, that's that's sacrilegious. I didn't say it was right to be disappointed with God. But the reality is God is not a genie in a lamp that you rub and he pops out and says, what are your three wishes? He's not going to do that. Oh, wrong one. Now you're told. Not going to happen. God is not a Santa Claus. And so you're going to be begging and pleading and praying, God, please heal my daughter. Let her walk. Let her run. And and he's going to say, no. It's not in the plan, son. It's not in the plan. And I had some bitterness in my life to deal with over the years not in the plan. You're going to pray for that job. You're going to pray for that demo- promotion. And, and, and in God's highness, he sees, he sees the layout of everything, not only in your life, but in all lives. He sees how all of the lines connect, and we sit here, and we think we know best, but we don't know. That if he does this, this will happen. We don't know if he, if he does this down the road, this will happen. We don't know if, if he doesn't do this, that person may come to Christ. Or if he, he holds back from this, this person may get right with God. We can't see the tapestry. We're just one thread. But he does. And we're disappointed by God. We're disappointed by God not answering our prayers the way we want them to be answered. We're not preventing harm to us. And somehow we think we can see the whole thing. It's kind of like politicians. They take no consideration for the consequences of their actions. Red, blue, left, right, you name it, reactionary without thought is often the way it happens. I see it all the time. If one person says yellow, the other person says black. They don't even consider the other side's opinion. They wouldn't consider it. God forbid, listen, God forbid they consider it because that gives the other side a win. So, I digress. This passage tells us to stare intently at Jesus. It falls in line with Matthew's teaching that I started the series with. If your eye is single, your eye will be full of light. That that eye being single, meaning good, uh, fixed on God, having a single-minded determination. My daughter, Kirsten, is a great example of that. I've been looking at her Facebook page every day for the last month, I think, and it says, my birthday is in 15 more days. My birthday is in 14 more days. My birthday is in 13 more days. And it's like every single day, my birthday. And I'm like, yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> we'll make sure we don't forget. She's turning 30. She's an old lady. How do I have a 30-year-old kid? That makes, that's, that's boggling to the mind. I mean, I look like I'm 30, so it doesn't doesn't work. She has this single-minded determination on a lot of different things, and what God is telling us is that we need to be fixated. When he says the word look, it means to stare with intense intensity, stare intensely at. That's what the word look means. It, It means to stare at without distraction. And in the next verse, verse 3, he says, actually, he says, consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against yourself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. And that word consider means to deeply ponder Christ. You want to kill bitterness before it starts. It starts with seeing Jesus. It starts with seeing Jesus. It starts looking at Jesus. The very best way to avoid bitterness is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we learn some things. We learn some things. We begin to see how he dealt with disappointment, with hardship, with betrayal. Looking unto Jesus is one of the best ways to kill bitterness before it it starts. So first of all, let's look at this. How did Jesus avoid bitterness? Well, he's the son of God. He's got an upper leg on all of us. However, he was led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit while on earth. He was fully human, fully God. He was divinely perfect, but he was empowered by the Holy Spirit on earth. He never lost sight of the joy and the blessing of his Father and the blessing of others who, for the joy, that was set before him, endured the cross. Folks, we, we need not to lose sight of our joy. Life is hard. Life is difficult. I, I, I know many of you have gone through some pretty horrific things. I, I join you in that. And my admonition to my family as we're going through difficult things is, guys, you got to watch out for bitterness. It's okay to have righteous anger, righteous anger is okay. You should be angry at injustice, but righteous anger becomes wrath when it begins to control you, and you're not controlling it. You follow? I've taught almost every single couple that I've counseled, the wrath of man does not work, the righteousness of God. You can abbreviate it in your life. If you're one of those people with that temper or that anger controls you, I want you to write this on the back of your eyelids. Get a tattoo on your arm. The wrath of man doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not going to do what you think you want it to do. Oh, I have to lose my temper for my kids to listen to me. When you lose your temper, you lose. Here Jesus is. He, he focused on the joy of the cross I mean of the of the blessing of the father and he endured the cross he endured the cross Jesus didn't turn bitter when he was betrayed by Judas Some of us are here this morning and we feel intensely betrayed I know I do Betrayal is a bitter pill to swallow And serious betrayal We're not talking about some little thing. We're talking about serious things that can impact the rest of your life. Well, you can make that betrayal a lot worse if you allow it to turn into bitterness. Jesus was betrayed in the worst possible way by one of his best friends. 12 disciples that he traveled with for three years, ate with, drank with, sat around a fire with, communed with, this. could you imagine just hanging out with Jesus for three years? The insights, John said in the book of John that if you were to include all of the things about Jesus, there wouldn't be a book that could contain it. I mean, there's things that he hung out and talked with them about that he didn't even write down. The Apostle Paul talks about that when he was pulled up into heaven and he saw all these revelations that he was given a thorn in the flesh that he might be, not basically be lifted up in pride and too high-minded. There's things that I'm certain Jesus shared with his disciples that we'll, we won't know about until we get to heaven. It's an amazing thing. He was betrayed and didn't turn bitter. He was betrayed. He was denied by Peter. Now, Judas wasn't in the inner circle, was he? Was Judas in the inner circle? No, Judas wasn't in the inner circle. Who was? We we teach small groups like this. Jesus and the three disciples, James, John, and Peter. That was his inner circle. The next larger group was the 12 disciples, and then the women that, that were following him as well as disciples. And then we had the large group, which is us here today, the gatherings, 128 or 150 disciples that met in the upper room. Folks, Peter was in his inner circle. In fact, Peter got caught up in bitterness. I think Peter was under the impression that Jesus was going to claim his kingdom on earth right then and there. I think Peter was not thinking that this was a, later on down the line, a prophecy that was yet to be fulfilled. He was thinking the prophecy from Zechariah was going to be fulfilled right then, right there, and uh, not so much. So he's following at a distance, his inner circle, following at a distance, gets caught up around a fire, and somebody says, hey, wait a second, weren't you one of his disciples? Weren't, weren't you with this Jesus dude? No, I wasn't with him. I wasn't with him. The bitterness was a root already, already developing. And if I had to make a guess, I would say that that root was planted when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Because Jesus disappointed Peter. You remember? Some of you don't. Maybe you don't know the scriptures. But Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem where he's wanted. And there's a death sentence on his head. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, Peter thought he's being a good friend. Over my dead body, are you going to Jerusalem? It's not going to happen. What are you thinking? Are you out of your mind? He's talking to a guy that raised people from the dead, walked on water, and fed 12,000 people. Miraculously healed lepers and blind men and cripples. And he's like, "You're not, you're not going there." And then Jesus looked at him and through him and saw Satan powering Peter's uh, commentary and said, "Satan, get thee behind me." And he looked at Peter, "You value the things of men more than you value the things of God." I'm willing to I don't want to say, bet, that is the moment. When that seed of bitterness was planted, when he was disappointed in God and it carried out to the point where he denied he knew him. He denied he knew him. And then he spoke in uh, that rough old fisherman language that he used to use I don't know the man. Now, why do I suspect he was bitter? Because the Bible says he went away and wept. Bitterly. Peter went away and wept bitterly. His eye wasn't fixed on Jesus. His eye was fixed on his own disappointment. His eye was fixed on not getting his way. His eye was fixed on on Jesus not living up to his expectation. It wasn't fixed on the true Christ. Jesus endured because of the joy that was set before him. Now, did Jesus enjoy the cross? What does the Bible say? Because that's what we're all about here. It says he what? He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He didn't enjoy being falsely accused, but he took it for our sake. He, he, he didn't enjoy the physical pain, but he took it for our sake. He didn't enjoy the spiritual pain, but he did it for our sake. And if you're here this morning... And I tell you, Jesus did it for your sake, for your sin. From the moment you were born to the moment you'll die, when Jesus hung on that cross, he was paying the price for your sin. The penalty for your sin was on him on the cross. That was the joy, by the way. The joy was knowing that we would be the prodigy of his suffering. The joy was knowing that people were going to be redeemed, bought back to God, restored to their original state. When God created the Garden of Eden, it was perfect and it was beautiful and it was amazing. And that was all lost. And then Jesus came and said, I want to give it back to you. I will pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be restored to fellowship with my Father, which knowing the Father is eternal life. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. When Jesus endured the shame and pain, what did it look like? It was more than digging in it. It was more than digging in and toughing it, toughing it out. There was a joyful expectation, a looking ahead that buoyed him. Oh, he despised the shame of our sin. He despised it. God hates sin. Of being called a sinner, he despised it, but he endured with grace. I've seen many people endure many trials, many trials. I'm one of them. And I've seen people endure trials for one simple reason. What do you think it is? What was that? No. Sadly, no. I've seen people endure trials because they had no other choice. That was it. That was it. There was no joyful expectation. There was no being bullied by the knowledge that one day you're going to see Jesus face to face. There was no joyful expectation, understanding that all things work together for good to those who are the called, to those, uh, to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. It was just simply this what else am I going to do? What am I going to do? can't fix it, can't control it, fatalistic, bitter, bitter. When Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't because, what else am I going to do? Let's be honest. If Jesus wanted to get down off the cross, would those Roman soldiers have been able to prevent it? Of course not. Of course not. He didn't need to call 10,000 angels an old gospel song he could have called 10,000 angels. Da, 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 da. He could have, but he didn't need to. He didn't need to. But he willingly submitted to suffering because he saw the joy that was set before him. Now, we don't always know what our joy is going to look like. We don't know what the benefit of our trials will ultimately be to ourselves and others. But is God good? Is God good? We have trouble in the world? Does that make God bad? The new atheists will tell you yes. They'll call God a monster, immoral, a beast. Well, Jesus endured it with grace, with grace. Not complaining, not resentment. But these others often we allow trials to corrupt our hearts. big biblical endurance is not just about sticking it out, folks it's about how you stick it out. It's about how you stick it out. Kudos to all of you who haven't given in. you haven't collapsed the last two years you haven't you haven't thrown the towel in and hid in your house and and, and just uh, been discouraged and you've just gone to work and you've just done what you had to do. And, and, I, and I appreciate that because I join you in that. But biblical endurance is more than just putting one foot in front of the other with a steely determination. Biblical endurance is how we stick it out. Looking To Jesus, the joy of our salvation, the relationship with Christ, giving us energy, giving us hope, giving us peace within, while all hell breaks loose on the outside. And when we're able to look to Jesus through these trials, and we're walking with him in a personal way, we begin to realize his power is in us. It's in us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. When we begin to truly live this out daily, we not only have his example to follow, but his spirit to guide and empower us. And so I'll end on this. There is hope. Oh, there's hope. Kill it before it starts. When you're walking with Jesus and all hell breaks loose, keep your eyes set on Jesus. Don't be distracted by the trial. Don't allow it to turn you from him. In fact, when disappointment is coming in, when hurt is coming in, when betrayal is coming in, when pain is coming in, that's the time to dig in even closer to him. And Colossians teaches us to be rooted in the word. So much so that the roots of bitterness have no place to grow. I hope you'll join me next week as we move on to the next step in this series of uncovering bitter roots. We're going to take a look at a man named Simon next week. And we're going to see the effects of bitterness as we move forward in this series. The effects of bitterness. So what do we do in the meanwhile? I don't want to leave you without something to step toward. So let's start here. Fix your eyes firmly on the cross and learn this with me. Jesus is more than an example. Can you say that with me? Two, three. Jesus is more than an example. That's how religion works. He's more than just an example. He is the power. The Holy Spirit is the power within us to follow him. It's more than just looking at him and saying, Oh, what a great guy Jesus was. It's looking at him and walking with him and having a meal with him. And when those disappointments come and those hardships come and those trials come, betrayals come. It's sitting down by the fire with Jesus after he went fishing. The disciples were fishing and they saw him on the shoreline and they recognized it was Jesus. Peter jumped in the water and swam to shore. Peter was struggling with the bitterness in his heart and he knew he had failed. Because I want to share this with you, bitterness is sin. It's sin and it's hurting you. And this time Peter didn't run away from Jesus. This time Peter didn't deny Jesus. This time, Peter wasn't the last one at the tomb. This time, he jumped in the water, and he swam to Jesus. And when he got to Jesus, he was sitting there with a fire made, and he had some fish cooking on the fire, and he fed them breakfast. Fish for breakfast? Not my idea of a good time. But they were fishermen. Maybe they liked it. He cooked some breakfast for them. They sat around the fire, I imagine, Like they used to in the old days, before the crucifixion. He spoke with them and he shared with them and then he took Peter aside. Hey, Peter, come here. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a walk. Peter, I know what you did. Son, I know. I know what you did. I know that what I did disappointed you. And you allowed the things of men to dominate your mind and you lost sight of me. But I want you to know, Peter, that forgiveness is available. Hope is available to you. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Even though I didn't do things that you were hoping I would do, I haven't set up my kingdom, do you love me, Peter? In that moment, those bitter roots were being dug up ripped out of the soil. He said, I love you, Lord. You know I do. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three. How many times did Jesus ask him if he loved him? Three. It's a completion. He wanted Peter to make sure that he understood. He wanted to make make sure Peter understood. I forgive everything. Forgive it all and you're not useless and you're not, worth, you're not worthless. In fact, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to take care of those, those sheep that are the most important thing to me, my treasure, my church. Folks, begin here looking to Jesus. Begin by confessing anything in your heart that, that he reveals to you. And in the next few weeks, we'll learn some more about digging up some roots that are pesky, that are really hidden. And hopefully God will use that to empower you for his service, for his glory, and empower this church to go on into the next decade as we shed the shackles of resentment, bitterness, and disappointment. And we embrace the suffering, whatever it may be, with joy, looking toward Jesus. Hey all thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.